In the 1850s and 60s, King Mongut was the king of Siam. Today, it's known as Thailand. But he was the king of Siam, and he ruled his kingdom with great strength. He was a man who was very learned. He had learned Western languages. He was a man who wanted his country to modernize. He was a man who was religious. He had been a Buddhist monk for most of his life before he became king. He did have an interesting harem. He had 35 wives. He had more than 80 children. But one of the things that he saw going on in his day in the 1850s and then 60s was that these Western countries, America, England, France, they were wanting to try to expand their influence in Southeast Asia. And he knew that they did not hold these Southeastern cultures in high regard, that they thought they were barbarians and they were talking about overthrowing them. And he wanted to try to see if he could find a way to protect that from happening to his kingdom of Siam. And so it was he wrote a letter to an agent in Singapore requesting a governess from England to come and to work with his children, to teach them English, to teach them Western customs, to teach his wives English and customs, and to see if they could modernize in some ways to help the Western areas say, no, we will leave Siam alone. The letter got sent. The agent in Singapore immediately knew who he wanted to turn to. There was a lady named Anna Leon Owens. It turned out that Anna had come to Singapore two years before. Now, Anna was the product of a mixed marriage. Her father was from India and serving in the army. Her mother was Anglo there in England. Now, in the 1830s, if you were of mixed race, that was a big deal in the 1830s. She had a little darker skin. Whenever somebody asked her about it, she simply said, I'm from Wales. I don't know what that had to do with it or not, but that's what she was saying. I'm from Wales. It turned out that she married her husband, Thomas Leon Owens, and they wound up, uh, uh, he wound up being a hotel clerk, but he died when he was less than 30 years old. So she was now a young mother with two small children needing to make it in the world on her own. And she decided to get a fresh start to recreate herself. And so she went to Singapore. And what she said was, I am a widow of a, gen a genteel widow of an army officer. Well, that really wasn't true. But she created a whole new perception of herself and she became the nanny, a governess, to run the nursery, a child care there for people from England who were serving there in Singapore. Well, she was asked if she would be willing to go to Siam and to teach the children there, and she agreed to go. She sent her oldest child, her daughter Avis, back home to go to England to get a good education there, and she took her five-year-old son, Louis, with her and went to Siam. Can you imagine how scary that must have been? I mean, to be going into a world that truly was a world away, 
There was no communication with other people. There were no people who looked like you, who thought like you. They dressed different. They had different customs. She and her son went to such a different world. And there she started working with the children. She loved them. She wanted to get to know them. And they wanted to get to know her. And they became best friends. She worked with the wives. She wanted to get to know them and, and to learn about their lives and to work with them. And then there was she and the king. Quite often they would have differences of opinions about what were the values and what should we do and what was important. And they would cross swords. They looked at life and the world so differently. But each of them really wanted to understand the other person. They wanted to get to know them. And with respect, they could learn and struggle and wrestle with who the other person was and a relationship would grow and love would grow. One of the things that Anna disliked the most about Siam was slavery. You know, by the 1860s, slavery had been abolished there in England, America. We were fighting a great war to decide. But in Siam... Slavery still was going on, and Anna did not like it. And so she brought and she gave to the children a book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. She wanted to teach them Uncle Tom's Cabin. Now, you remember the book. It was written by Harriet Beecher Stowe back in 1852. And when it came out in 1852, it sold like crazy in the United States, but it sold three times that fast in England. It turned out that she took the story of slavery and she put a face on it. She helped us to see the life of a slave as a person. What were they going through? It's like we got to know Tom and all those who were engaged. And when you saw slavery and how a child would be taken away and sold or a father sold and families broken up, it galvanized the abolitionist. The people of the north, when they read Uncle Tom's Cabin, it pulled them together to say, I've never really thought about slavery in this way. I see it in a different way. And they felt it was wrong. Years later, Abraham Lincoln would meet Harriet and he would wind up saying, So you're the little lady that started this great war. It really did affect America to help us to get to know slavery, to put a face on it, and to say it's going to be changed. It's wrong. And so Anna took the book and she gave it to the children, and the wives was teaching them. And sure enough, along came this delegation from England to come and see what was Siam all about. And very quickly, they all tried to get together and put on a play and decided they would do what they called the little house of Uncle Thomas. And they were going to tell the story of um, Uncle Tom's cabin. So they pulled it all together and they talked about Uncle Thomas and they talked about King Simon of Legree, the evil man. And they put on the show and the king did not like the values that they were being taught. But the delegation from the West was incredibly impressed 
so impressed they chose not to try to overthrow Siam, to embrace the culture there, feeling it was so much more modern than they knew. Anna would be there from 1861 to 1867, about six years. She was going to take a short sabbatical, and the king died, and Anna never came back. But she did write a book, The English Governess of the Siamese Courts. It really didn't sell. It went nowhere. And you know, Anna would have been one of those whose life faded from history had it not been for Margaret Landon. Margaret Landon and her husband Ken were missionaries. And in 1928, they thought they were going to go to the Middle East and be missionaries, and instead the church sent them to Siam. They went to Siam, and there as missionaries, they began to study the language and to learn the culture. And one day she was with a friend from England, uh, um, a Dr. McDaniel, and he took her into her library, and he took some books off his bookshelf, and behind them, he pulled out a book and said, you might want to read this, Margaret. It was entitled, The English Governess from the Courts of Siam. He said, you have to hide this book because the people of Siam do not like it. It tends to make their king look like a regular human being with imperfections and, and mistakes. They like to think of him as divine. Well, Margaret took the book and she read it. And she loved it. When she brought it back, he had another book for her, Romance of the Harem. And it was also by Anna. When she was through with that book, she was hooked. And when they came back home to the United States, to Chicago, Margaret wanted to learn everything she could about this Anna Leon Owens. There wasn't a whole lot to find out until her husband was giving a lecture at Northwestern and talking about being in Siam, and when he got through, this Episcopal priest came up and said, you want to meet my mother? Okay. No, she was a friend of Anna's. He quickly did the math and thought, that's not possible. Yes, she's 93. 93 and a perfect mind. She was sharp as a tack, and so they went to go see his mother. And she told him all kinds of stories about Anna and what life was like there in Siam. And lo and behold, just a couple of months after that, Anna's granddaughter, who lived in Canada and had never come down to the United States, made a trip to Chicago to see her grandmother's old friend. Her name was Avis, named after her mother. And when she came, Again, here came Ken and Margaret to be with her, and they talked about all kinds of stories. She had been making notes and collecting stories, and she had letters written in the hand of the king of Siam from King Moncut himself, and letters that Anna had written that the world did not know existed, and she gave them all to Margaret to use. And so Margaret sat down with these years of work and she wrote the book, Anna and the King of Siam. It came out in 1944 and it immediately attracted attention. So much so that by 1946 it was made into a movie and Rex Harrison played the King of Siam. 
Well, in the end, there was Dorothy um, of Dorothy Rogers and Dorothy Hammerstein, the two wives, who both read this book that came out. And they took the book to their husbands and said, do a musical on this. And they said, no. They didn't like it. No, it was Fanny Holtzman, a lawyer, for Gertrude Lawrence, who was a star on Broadway in those days, who felt she would be the perfect Anna, who also took the book to Rodgers and Hammerstein and gave it to him and said, you need to write a musical. And so when three ladies piled on, they finally said, okay. And they went to work on a musical. March of 1951, it opened on Broadway. Yule Brenner was playing the king. It had been Mary Martin who had played in South Pacific who said to Rodgers and Hammerstein, I know this new young actor who would be great. They wanted Rex Harrison. Rex Harrison said no. And so this new young actor shaved his head and he never let his hair grow again. And he played the king. It was huge. Won Tony Awards for best new musical, actor, actresses. It was such a success that it was made into a movie in 1956. Yule Brenner still played the king in the movie and won an Academy Award for his role, nominated for Best Picture. And then for the last 50 years, it's played in so many high schools and local theaters and touring companies. Until 2015, there was a revival of The King and I that was put on Broadway. And when it came to Broadway in 2015, it garnered nine Tony nominations. It won four. Kelly O'Hara, our own Kelly O'Hara, she won her first Tony for Best Actress. It's been a huge success, making more than $55 million. It closed in June. And, you know, I just started thinking about this story, and I got to thinking, why? Why is a musical that came out in 1951... Still so popular 65 years later. A musical about a story that was 150 years ago. I believe the answer is simple. It's because the musical touches something deep in our soul. It talks about one of those significant issues we all wrestle with. And that is we all want to be understood. We want to be accepted for who we are. But that also means that I have to become vulnerable and get honest with you. And that gets scary. There's also a claim in there that says if you want to be understood and accepted, then you also have to offer understanding and acceptance. And that's scary too. The real theme of the show is about people getting to know one another who are different. And it's why the song that probably is the most popular from the show is Getting to Know You. Just a few words from it. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like me. Getting to know you. Getting to feel free and easy when I am with you. Sharing your spirit. Sharing your tears and your laughter hoping it goes on, hoping it lasts endlessly, telling you my dreams, getting to feel that you're with me, 
making our own fun, knowing we know how to play, getting to know you, getting to know all about you, getting to like you, getting to hope you like me. It is the fundamental thing that everybody wants, to be able to be honest, for somebody to come to know us and to be accepted. I believe it's what our scripture lesson is about this morning in Paul's letter to the Galatians. You know, you stop and think about the culture in which Paul was trying to start the early church. You talk about diverse. You talk about different. I mean, here you had people who were Jews. Paul always went to the Jews first. They lived by the law of Moses. They had the promise of Abraham. They were very specific in who they were and different from everyone else. And some of them came to this early church. And then Paul went to the Gentiles, the people who were Greek and Roman, the people who did not follow the laws of Moses. They lived a completely different life and looked at the world different. And they came together in church. And then you had those who were slaves. They had certain freedoms under the law but you had free people, Roman citizens, who had very different freedoms under the law. And then you had male and female. The males dominated. The females were barely above property in their rights in that day. For 2,000 years since then, we've been working on women's rights. In that day, there were none. And so suddenly you had coming to church Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, male and female, all wanting to be a part of church. You talk about diverse and different opinions and ideas and values. And Paul said, we do not have Jews and Greeks, nor slaves, nor free, nor male, nor female. We are one in Christ For Paul, the belief was it's you and I who come to a community of faith to know the gift of God's grace, that we are accepted as we are. And we need to experience that among one another in a family of faith. And if you want to experience understanding and acceptance, it means you must also offer understanding and acceptance to others. For Paul... He would bring together such diversity and create the church. Now, you know, I believe that today you and I are confronted with more different opinions, more different cultures and ideas than ever before. Because of travel, I know how many of you travel so freely and you go so many places and see the different way people live. Because of mass communication, In 1865, who knew what was going on in Siam? Today, you and I know what's going on anywhere in the world immediately. Because of immigration, you are not going to live in a homogeneous neighborhood. You are going to live in a neighborhood with people from other places in the world. And the question becomes, how can we come to know others How can we come to accept and understand others? How can they come to know and accept us? 
Because it's only through knowing and coming to understand and accept each other that there can ever be relationships, there can ever be family, there can ever be a community of faith, there can ever be peace. Paul said, we're not going to be Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female. We are one in Christ. Just two things I want to quickly say about that this morning. First of all, just never forget, everyone is like you. Everyone wants to feel understood and accepted. We want to feel loved for who we are. That's what the struggle in the, in the show, the king and I, was all about. You had a king who wanted to be understood and accepted. He didn't want to be thought of as a barbarian. Yes, some of his ideas and culture was different, but would someone understand and accept him? And you had Anna, who also wanted to be understood and accepted as she was. And yet, isn't it interesting that Anna had to lie about her past? She had to put on a face a false face, a false front, to claim to be something she was not so that she would be accepted for the job. How many times have you and I gone through life and tried to be something we are not? Tried to put on a false front, to look some way that we're not because we're afraid of being rejected. We're afraid of not being accepted. And so we try to act like something we're not. It was the struggle in the show. And what the show should talk to us about is how as they struggled trying to understand each other, they also came to accept one another, even with differences, and love began to grow. I do love Kelly O'Hare. What a great lady. What an amazing job she has done. As you know, she's from Oklahoma, graduated from Oklahoma City University. She sang as a fellowship student in our choir for three years. For three years, we had the privilege of getting to have Kelly here on Sunday mornings, singing at the 8.30 service, and then at the 10.50 service. And she was just an amazing lady. She graduated and headed off to Broadway, and what incredible success. The last six roles she has had on Broadway, she's been nominated for a Tony for each one of them, and finally winning this last year. I mean... She is definitely Broadway's number one leading lady right now. And it was a few months ago um, that Jane Giroux had Kelly here in town to be receiving a doctorate degree from OCU. And she was going to be speaking to Esther Women, and which is here at our church. And we filled up the sanctuary to come hear Kelly. You know, the fun thing is that Kelly is such a person of compassion. Just this past week, she was in Orlando headlining a show entitled From Broadway with Love. It was a fundraiser to raise funds for people who had been affected by the mass shooting in Orlando. And she was there to be the headliner. Those tickets sold out in two hours after they went online. She's still a lady of faith. Last year in September, she sang the Lord's Prayer in the in Madison Square Gardens before the Pope wound up uh, conducting Mass. No, she's just a neat lady who loves her husband and her children, her family, friends. And she was here, and, and I will just never forget her kind of talking about these things. She said, what's most important to me? It is my family. It is my friends. 
And she said, you know, it's interesting. She's talking about being so famous, how friends and family will come to New York and they won't call. They won't come backstage to see her. And they'll say later, well, I know you're busy and I know so many people are pulling on you. And she said, I just want you to remember, I'm just me. I'm just me. I think every single one of us wants to be just me. To be who I am. To be known by someone else and to be accepted for who I am. That's what we all hunger for. Not having to wear a false mask or put on a false front. And it's why Paul said, we're going to be a family of faith, the church. And it starts grounded in our faith in God's grace. And so we will come together where we will know what it means to be accepted by God and accept one another. There will be no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We will be one in Christ. And so secondly, if you're the one who wants to be known and accepted, then you're also the one who has to offer knowing understanding and accepting others. You want to be understood and accepted? Then we are the people of Christ who are called to offer understanding and acceptance. Paul knew that when he pulled together the church, it wasn't going to be of perfect people. No, when people came together, he knew they were going to be sinners. People of strengths and weaknesses and good times and bad times. But we're going to have to come together and and not demand that everybody who comes was perfect. We just need to come to understand each other and be able to forgive and to love each other if we're going to be the church. The story of the king and I is really about two people who were not perfect. Anna was not perfect. She was lying about her past. The king was not perfect. You will see him get jealous and get angry. They were two people from different worlds and perspectives who were willing to put out the effort to come to understand each other and offer acceptance to each other. And so a relationship grew and love would blossom. It's what happens in our families. In our families, it is not about making sure that everybody is perfect. It's not about making sure everybody in the family agrees with you and looks at everything the way you do? If that's what we have, then we don't have family. It's about trying to understand each other and accept each other. That's the foundation for family. It's the foundation for the family of faith, for the church. More important than being perfect, it's about being real when you and I can be real with each other and others are real with us, love grows. In 1946, the queen, Queen Barney of Siam, or Thailand by that time, was here in America. It was after World War II. She'd come over with a delegation and lots of royal family from Thailand 
And they were in New York, and they were wanting to travel around and see different things. And one of the things they wanted to do was to meet Margaret Landon. They wanted to meet Margaret Landon. And so it was, Ken said, I'll never forget the day I answered the phone, and here was the Queen of Thailand saying, I would like to come to dinner. He said, that's the way that royalty does it. You don't invite them to come to dinner. They invite themselves to come to dinner. And he said, we scurried around for the next couple days trying to fix up the house and prepare and get the caterers ready. And finally, we opened the door when this entourage from Thailand arrived for dinner. And he said, in came the queen, and she was very prim and proper, just like a queen should be. But her brother, a prince, he was with them, and he was just so enthusiastic and overflowing, and he was just so excited to say, I'm here to meet Margaret. The woman who wrote the book, Anna and the King of Siam. I must tell you, I am one in the royal family who liked the book. <laughs> you talked about our famous king, Moncut, And what you said is real. But I'm a painter. And what I know is that every great picture must have sunshine and shadows. Thank you. Every life has sunshine and shadows. Mine, yours, more important than being perfect is being real. We want to be understood for who we are, it means we must also understand and accept others for who they are. It's the foundation of family. It's the foundation of family of faith. It's the foundation of church. It's why Paul would say, there is no Jew nor Greek. There is no slave nor free. There is no male nor female. We are one in God's grace. And when you and I start with God's grace, then what we discover is it's excited to be about getting to know you, getting to know all about you, getting to like you, and getting to hope you like me. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.